flood damage in the Fraser Valley. I had a river going through my yard. Why residents say thousands of dollars in property losses could have been prevented. Another crane collapse. These types of incidents are fairly rare, but when they happen, they tend to be fairly high profile. What crews were doing when the boom broke. And on-ice violence sparks an investigation. It is fight night at the fish tank. The disturbing chokehold that has some calling for harsher punishment. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin with breaking developments of a state of local emergency declared in Pemberton. The alert came this afternoon as water flooded several properties. Jennifer Palma is live with more and Jen so far six properties have been ordered to evacuate. Yeah, that's right, Chris. And so heavy rainfall and snow melt have caused the level of the Lillooet River in the Pemberton Valley to rise quickly. An evacuation order has been issued for a number of properties, including the Pemberton Animal Wellbeing Society building along Airport Road. Animals have been sent out to foster care in the meantime. The River Forecast Center says initial storms delivered between 80 and 300 millimeters of rain to the region since Friday, with up to 130 millimeters just in the past 24 hours. Pemberton's mayor says this is unusual for them at this time of year, but that they're planning for every situation as more rain is in that forecast. The acting dike there is actually Airport Road itself, and the water has started to come over, and there's a little percolation underneath. So, for the safety of the folks in that area, we decided to uh, put an order on. Of course, if something does breach and, and happens quickly, we could go right to an evacuation order for everybody. For specific areas so uh, it's important for people to be ready have a bag packed is always a good thing we know that state of local emergency in pemberton will be in place for 14 days but no doubt there's a lot of worried people in that area tonight chris sophie no doubt okay thanks very much and for more on what's coming up next in the forecast senior meteorologist christy gordon joins us christy how will that impact the region well, Sophie, this is the third of the series that we've been watching over the last little while, and it will take over all of the south coast, including Pemberton. We're expecting rainfall tonight through the day tomorrow, right into our Thursday morning. The good news is Pemberton really is on the outer edge of the impact of that system. Far more moisture expected to further towards the coast. But for Pemberton, we could see another 10 to 25 millimeters compared to the 130 that they saw. That is far less. Looking at one of the computer models by the BC River Forecast Center, this is the Lillooet River. Really, the peak was expected today with minimal impact beyond this. But keep in mind, we're also looking at significant snow melt. And we have potentially one more record-breaking day of heat on the way. Back to you. All right. Thanks for that, Christy. All right. The water has receded, but the damage is done from weekend flooding in Lake Arok. Now the question is, who will take responsibility for it? Residents are shocked after losing so much property, especially because, as Cassidy Moscone shows us, they say it was entirely preventable. This was just all covered with water. There was a river running through. Carol Dolan woke up to water flooding her Fraser Valley property Sunday morning. I was in shock. I was devastated. I didn't know what to do next. I was, it was awful. The water's flow so powerful, it washed away a stretch of road, her driveway, and even destroyed her shed, leaving behind an almighty cleanup. 
I could see just like two feet of water over top of my boots and just mud sluicing right through. Also going down her driveway, like it was quite scary. We just started digging and diverting the water. There had to be 15 or 20 of us out here with shovels and rakes and hose just as fast as we can. Carol estimates the damage bill to be around $50,000 minimum. That is not including the antiques and collectibles stored in her shed. All of it is uninsured. The Lake Aroch grandmother calls the flood event preventable. She blames Ministry of Transportation and Infrastructure contractors for failing to clear the culverts and drainage ditches surrounding her property and thinks they should foot the bill. I have called them out so many times. I haven't seen this ditch maintained for at least 10 years. I haven't seen any kind of ditch maintenance whatsoever um, and just like, I think a general lack of regard for us up here. In a statement, the contractor Emil Anderson told Global News news it's investigating what happened. Our primary concern is the well-being of the communities we serve and we will be actively assessing this situation in the coming days. The Ministry of Transportation and Infrastructure told us late Tuesday contractors annually assess ditches and culverts but only on provincial infrastructure. Carol maintains her private culvert was not the problem. The Ministry is investigating further. Cassidy Moscone, Global News. An investigation is underway after another frightening construction crane collapse. It happened during a morning safety check at a 51-story condo project in Surrey. Grace Key is live at the site, and Grace, no one was hurt, thankfully, but this is the second time this has happened in less than a week. Yeah, there was one that happened on Friday, and of course that is causing some concern with those in the industry. All day, investigators have been at a Surrey construction site trying to figure out what caused this boom to fail. Allied owns the crane and rents it out. Axiom Builders released a statement. At 7 a.m. this morning during a daily safety check, we experienced a crane failure at a site in Surrey. There were no injuries. WorkSafe is now on site with a team of inspectors to thoroughly investigate the cause of this incident. And our team will work with them to ensure a comprehensive assessment. It's the second crane accident in recent days. On Friday, a crane toppled over on top of a high-rise under construction in Burnaby. No one was injured. There is a renewed call for mandatory certification. Generally, they start as riggers and then they get seat time in the crane and they start with a B ticket and currently at BC, most of them that have A tickets challenge. But what we're seeing is a is a is because the B tickets expire, people sort of getting a number of B tickets over and over and over again and not achieving certification. WorkSafe BC outlined regulations surrounding cranes, including certification, and this year mobile and tower crane operators will be added as a technical safety BC compulsory trade. There's a lot of compulsory trades already in British Columbia. Uh, what that requires is for you to do a certain type of work, you either have to have a journey person ticket or you need to be a registered apprentice. And that doesn't, that doesn't happen for tower crane operators today. So you can see the crane is standing here behind me. Now, a few minutes ago, that uh, equipment that was brought in after the accident, it just pulled out. They did have third-party engineers here all day, just trying to make sure, uh, working with other teams, that it was stable and try to come up with a plan to safely dismantle it. So no time frame yet on exactly when that's going to be happening. Back to you. All right, thanks for that. Grace Key reporting live in Surrey.
The city of Kelowna is now taking a more active role in a controversial construction project that's caused problems for surrounding buildings. The city says it's now working with UBC Okanagan to mitigate any further damage caused by the construction of a new tower. The project has caused problems for surrounding buildings, including cracks in foundations, and some businesses and buildings have had to close. The city says a new team will do everything possible to prevent any further problems. There's a team of engineers involved. Uh, currently, those engineers are having their work peer-reviewed by other engineers, and they're all putting their heads together to find the best solution uh, to solve the problem uh, without causing any further damage or impacting any of those neighboring properties. The city has not issued any stop work orders, and it says it doesn't anticipate the need for any of them in the future. A frightening on-ice incident during a Pacific Junior Hockey League game is once again putting the spotlight on violence in the sport. A third-period brawl ended with a goalie injured and multiple players ejected from the game. Richard Zussman reports, but first, a warning. Some of the images in this story might be disturbing. It is fight night at the fish tank. Tensions boiling over. We expected this the whole time. Fights breaking out during Thursday night's Pacific Junior Hockey League game. After punches thrown, Richmond Sockeye player Ethan Grishin grabbing North Vancouver Wolfpack goaltender Evan Paul in a chokehold. Until Paul eventually lays collapsed on the ice. Down right now, and Evan Paul. If people think they can go to the ice and do things that they wouldn't be able to do in other places, they are kidding themselves. The BJHL not responding to multiple requests for comment. Both teams saying they are awaiting the outcome of an investigation into the incident by the league's Department of Player Safety. In a statement posted online, the Wolfpack write that goalie Evan Paul was required to leave the game due to severe injuries. He's recovering at home and his injury status is day to day. Violence is never the answer. And every time we see people proposing violence being the answer, it doesn't work. When first asked about the incident over the weekend, the Richmond RCMP said they'd not been notified of it. Richmond Sockeyes player Ethan Grishin has a history, already this year suspended for various different altercations, including attacking a referee and both fighting and slashing opponents. It's very tough to look at that video and feel that at any point like that has any role on a hockey uh, rink. Dr. Charles Popkin, part of a team of researchers, published a paper a year ago questioning whether fighting should even be in hockey anymore, finding that those who spent a career getting punched in the face died 10 years earlier than those who didn't. It is very tough as a medical professional to, you know, get behind fighting. I think it should be a game misconduct. And then you take a look there at number 22. And... Christian has been suspended indefinitely and awaits word on a final discipline decision from the league. Richard Zospin, Global News, Victoria. Five professional hockey players are now charged in connection with an alleged group sexual assault in London, Ontario, five years ago. Each of them are expected to surrender to London police before a news conference is held on Monday. Mackenzie Gray reports. The identities of the former Canadian World Junior hockey team members said to be involved in the alleged group sexual assault of a 23-year-old back in 2018 are now public. Legal counsel for four NHLers, star Philadelphia Flyers goalie Carter Hart, Mike McLeod and Cal Footer, the New Jersey Devils, 
and Calgary Flames forward Dylan Dubé have confirmed that the former Wool Junior team members have been charged with sexual assault by London, Ontario police. Hart's lawyer tweeted that he's innocent and will provide a full response to this false allegation in its proper form, a court of law. Foote's lawyer also maintained that he's innocent of the charge and will fight to clear his name, a similar sentiment shared by separate statements for counsel for McLeod and Dubé, saying they're denying any criminal wrongdoing, will defend themselves in court, and will be pleading not guilty. Their Wool Jr. teammate and former Ottawa Senator Alex Formanton surrendered to police in London on Sunday, with his lawyers confirming that he's also been charged in relation to the alleged group sexual assault, but stated Alex will vigorously defend his innocence and ask that people not rush to judgment without hearing all the evidence. The Globe and Mail previously reported five players from the 2018 team had been asked to surrender to police in London, Ontario to face sexual assault charges. All five of the players took leaves of absence from their professional teams recently, with the Calgary Flames saying that Dubé left the club to deal with his, quote, mental health. London police have so far not commented on the potential charges, but have said they're planning to address them in a press conference on February 5th. Mackenzie Gray, Global News, Ottawa. A violent suspect is back on the streets after recently pleading guilty to three assaults. As Kristen Robinson reports, it was just a month ago when Vancouver police publicly warned that Kayla Kelly is unpredictable with the potential for violence. More than a month after the VPD warned the public about Kayla Kelly, the 29-year-old has been released from custody after pleading guilty to three assaults. Throwing an unknown liquid on a stranger at a New Westminster Safeway and attacking a Vancouver police officer last September, then hitting a 70-year-old man in a wheelchair after being asked to leave this downtown Eastside building in November. Yeah, I seen her hog tire and take her out when she was being, um, in my opinion, she was being calm. She wasn't yelling. She wasn't screaming. She wasn't. Uh, swearing, she was having a normal conversation. Kevin Usher says police have been called to the supportive housing building where Kelly has been ordered to reside, but he's never seen her violent. I think she's a, she's a nice girl. I know a lot of people down here have mental health issues. We felt very strongly that it was necessary to take this extraordinary step to let people know. In late December, Vancouver police warned Kelly was recently arrested on allegations of aggravated assault and assault with a weapon in a serious random stranger attack. We'll do everything that we can to uh, push this case as far as we can push it, uh, to the, hopefully to the point where we can secure the evidence that we need to obtain criminal charges. In 2022, Kelly was accused of assault with a weapon after allegedly stabbing a stranger in the leg with a needle in Chinatown. That charge was stayed by the Crown last March, along with unrelated charges of breaching release by possessing a weapon and the assault of two VPD officers. We're doing what we can as a police agency and working with our partners to address those public safety concerns. One of the very important steps that we took was to uh, issue this public warning. Oh, yeah. Kelly must abide by several conditions, including staying away from two downtown east side buildings, not possessing weapons, and working with a community treatment team that supports people living with complex mental health issues. Yeah, I think it's a great thing. I think maybe she's finally not falling through the cracks. A lot of people do, right? Especially down here, you get kind of um, kicked to the curb and forgotten about. Kristen Robinson, Global News. A warning now, some of the images in our next story might be disturbing for some viewers. The inquest into a deadly fire at a Vancouver SRO hotel 
has heard that while the building had several safety violations, it was not flagged as especially dangerous. Angela Jung reports. Day seven of the coroner's inquest began with the city of Vancouver inspector testifying the Winters Hotel had an inspection just six months before the deadly fire. A glimpse inside the Winters Hotel as smoke poured from the building. The city's head of property use inspection testifying prior to the April 2022 fire, Winters Hotel was considered a low-risk property. Yet during the October 2021 inspection, 18 life safety violations were found, including items hanging off sprinkler lines, missing smoke detectors, non-operational fire door closures, and breach in the walls and or ceilings. A resident who had to be rescued from the burning SRO had testified last week her wall had one of those breaches. There was a little hole in the wall, and I seen smoke just, just starting to kick, blow right into the room, eh? The devastating fire killed 63-year-old Marianne Garlow and 53-year-old Dennis Gay. Atira's director of supportive housing telling jurors he was initially under the impression everyone was accounted for. He explains someone thought they saw Gay and a different Mary had checked in. Their bodies were found during demolition, 11 days after the fire. Chauncey Carr telling jurors the SRO did have a fire safety plan but did not have regular fire drills. He says, in hindsight, I didn't realize how dangerous the Winters was. It's a 113-year-old building. By modern standards, I don't know if those plans would have been approved. He pointed to the open atrium as an example, which allowed flames to quickly spread. In the coming days, another Tira employee and representatives from the B.C. Housing Ministry are expected to take the stand. Angela Jung, Global News. A rural Richmond property that's much more than a farmhouse. The sprawling compound is supposed to be part of the agricultural land reserve. But we'll show you what's happening there that raises some red flags with local bylaw officers. Next on the News Hour. He was used to being outside. 17 days lost and alone. How this dog was finally reunited with its owner later. And a major announcement that's going to make it easier for cancer patients to get diagnosis and treatment. That's still to come on the News Hour. Right now, though, the City of Richmond and the Agricultural Land Commission are investigating activity at one of the city's sprawling mansions. The property is agricultural reserve land and appears to be operating as a private social club available for rent with no business license. Aaron MacArthur reports. The City of Richmond bylaw team arrived in force Tuesday morning, along with the Agricultural Land Commission's enforcement branch. The authorities asking questions of the owners of this property along Number 5 Road. Is there a reason why you are filming us? Online, the home is marketed as an exclusive private members club called Beijing Mansion. The tagline reads, where members can have access to experiences beyond expectations. According to the Agricultural Land Commission, the farm may not be allowed to operate in this manner. Complaints to the ALC prompted the agency to look into the business. Writing an email to Global News that says, at this time we are not aware of any approvals issued to authorize the alleged non-farm use activities on the property. There have already been events held here. In November, it played host to the Chinese Restaurant Awards, tables advertised at more than $2,800. 
The manager of Beijing Mansion declined an on-camera interview, but says the club is at this point strictly virtual, a test marketing strategy for a future development, saying their interpretation of the ALR regulations indicate they're allowed to host up to 10 events a year. The venue has no like commercial kitchen, like uh, it's a house. It's a event rental space. But the city of Richmond also has concerns about the business. According to the city, the property has been on its radar for some time. Residents complaining about the operation. It seems to be a club that is billing as being exclusive, has an online presence, but we have no license application, we have no business license or any process for it to actually operate as that kind of institution. The city says bylaw teams did find infractions and is working with the owner on the next steps. Stop work orders or financial penalties can be applied by both the city and the ALC. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Surrey has seen an increase in transit options in recent years, but more people are still taking their cars to work. Janet Brown shows us how car culture is deeply embedded in Surrey and what officials say is needed to break the habit. There needs to be a revolutionary shift around uh, transit and transportation investments in Surrey. The Surrey Board of Trade has released its annual road survey of 900 members. It highlights the busiest transportation routes in the city, emphasizes the need for more and better transit and transportation infrastructure, and shows most people are still using their vehicle to get around. We are a car culture, and we're going to be a car culture until there is major change uh, in, in Surrey. We're still really in need of more public transit. There's no, there's no doubt about it. We don't have anywhere near the public transit we need for a community that's growing at the pace we're growing. In a statement, TransLink says it has increased bus service in Surrey more than any other area in Metro Vancouver, but there is continued need to expand service. Some of the highlights of the survey, 84% drive their own vehicle to work. 51% say there are barriers to choosing different modes of transportation. And 40% say traffic congestion has a significant impact on business operations. The survey also found 78% of respondents would like to see this road, 72nd Avenue, which is a dead end right now, be extended from 152nd Street out to the Fraser Highway. And even though construction of the new Patello Bridge is well underway, 48% say they would like to see the crossing have six lanes rather than four when traffic is heavy. The Transportation Minister telling a Surrey Board of Trade luncheon there will be room for expansion. A new modern widened four-lane bridge. Um, expandable to six lanes, as I like to say, and that's true, it was built for that. Any upgrades to transportation obviously requires more money, and with the provincial budget looming, many south of the Fraser are hoping the purse strings will be opened. Janet Brown, Global News. Coming up, a Facebook marketplace sale takes a wild turn. How is any business gonna be able to trust a bank draft anymore? How he lost a luxury watch and $10,000 and why he blames the bank for it. And a Kelowna business reeling after a smash and grab. 
A warning about bank drafts tonight. It turns out what was once viewed as a secure way to make large purchases may not always be the case. That's right. A Vancouver man who fell victim to a bank draft fraud is sharing his story after losing thousands even after the bank apparently told him it was legit. Consumer Matters' Andrew joins us now with more. Thanks, Chris. Vancouver resident Mark Milburn has his own business and says he has used bank drafts in the past without issue. A bank draft is supposed to be a safe, guaranteed form of payment. But it turns out Mark became the victim of fraud. Now he says he's wondering why his bank didn't do more to protect him. How is any business going to be able to trust a bank draft anymore? It's a question Mark Milburn has been asking himself ever since he received a fraudulent bank draft. Back in early January, Mark was selling a $10,000 luxury watch similar to this one on Facebook Marketplace. The Vancouver resident says he's used the social media platform many times in the past without issue. I've never been concerned. Until recently, when an interested buyer contacted him on the social media platform, agreeing to purchase the watch. She had offered to meet at the police station or at the issuing bank or a bank and wanted to use a bank draft. The buyer, Mark says, sent her fiancé to meet up with him. Mark says this is the man who showed up outside his home to pick up the watch and deliver the bank draft. But before he completed the sale, Mark says he had a good look at the draft. This was flawless. To be certain the draft was valid, Mark says he went in person to his RBC branch and spoke with the teller, who said... You have nothing to worry about. Looks great. Legitimately felt total confidence in just the bank draft itself. She then goes, would you like to clear the funds? I hadn't asked for it, she'd offered. I said, sure, that's great. She then takes it and talks to the manager. The manager clears the funds in that moment, no questions asked. Mark says he then handed over the watch to the buyer. But four days later, Mark discovered he now owed $10,000 in one of his personal RBC accounts. Immediately, he returned to his RBC branch, but says he got few answers and was told to cross the street to TD, the financial institution which issued the draft. When the TD manager checked the bank draft number, Mark says, he was told it was a fake. The thing that's crazy, what she explained to me, was that this bank draft existed. So this number actually correlates to something at some point in time. RBC wouldn't share details with Consumer Matters about Mark's case and did not answer our questions, but stated in part, we remind clients to take precautions whenever receiving funds to ensure they are dealing with a legitimate source and are comfortable with the form of payment they are accepting. TD stated in part, bank drafts are validated once they're deposited and processed by the negotiating institution and can be returned if found to be counterfeit. Still, some cybersecurity experts say banks are not doing enough to protect consumers. I think there's been no communication to the public about bank draft fraud. And unfortunately, that goes for all kinds of other types of fraud that people just assume is inherently secure. Mark is now out thousands of dollars, wondering why his bank didn't do more to protect him. I completely feel like they let us down. Now, when it comes to bank drafts, know the risks. This type of fraud apparently is on the rise. Cybersecurity experts warn consumers need to assume there has to be a clearance period for checks and bank drafts, and the funds must be confirmed before moving ahead with the sale. Also, it's a good idea to contact the issuing financial institution of the draft yourself before completing the transaction. Meantime, Mark did file a report with the VPD. We are told by police the file remains open and no arrests have been made.
And if you have a consumer issue, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right, thanks for that, Anne. A downtown Vernon business is offering a reward as it looks to the public for help following a significant smash and grab at its store. Cobbler's Rack Shoes and Repairs is hoping to identify who's responsible for the vandalism and theft, but it's also hoping to recover some of the unique handbags that were stolen. It would be nice to get our product back, but I think it's gone. I think it's gone. I've been here like since the store opened. So, I mean, I don't own it, but it's like, it's my store. And you've stolen from me, you've damaged our property. I'm just angry. And I thought that was awful. So I thought, I'm in town today and I'm gonna come in and support them. You yeah. came in to buy something? I came in to buy something. Just because of this? Just because of that, yep. RCMP are investigating and reviewing surveillance footage and the store is offering a $1,000 reward for information that leads to an arrest. Coming up, the odds stacked against resident killer whales. Why local researchers are so worried about the disappearance of a young orca. Plus, the triumph of technology. The multi-million dollar investment in cancer detection. Well, just a month ago, we reported on the birth of an orca off the coast of Washington State. Sadly, that orca calf is now presumed dead. Researchers say he was not spotted with the pod last week. And as Kylie Stanton reports, the loss hits hard for an already endangered population. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. This one also stirring up just as many emotions. There's that initial um, joy that we can't help but feel. The image, captured a little more than a month ago, shows the new male orca calf with J-Pod. What was considered a massive boost to the critically endangered southern resident killer whales. We can't help but get our hopes up with the uh, the birth of a new new baby into this population or any population. But now those hopes are dashed. In a Facebook post Monday, the Center for Whale Research confirmed the calf, known as J60, was missing during its most recent photo ID survey. Writing, given his young age, it is extremely unlikely that J60 was off on his own for the entire duration of the encounter. We now believe that J60 is likely deceased. It's definitely um, a hard hit for the population. The calf is believed to have been born right around Christmas to either J42 or J46. Both would have been first-time mothers, which historically increases the mortality rate for young calves. It can be up to 50%. The first six months are critical um, of survival for calves. In December, new research found toxic chemicals from oil spills and wildfire smoke in a dozen killer whales off BC's coast. The transfer of chemicals between mother orcas and the fetus in the womb was also detected. On top of that, the population as a whole is said to be suffering from a worrisome calorie deficit, with Chinook salmon, their main food source, on the decline. It's definitely frustrating since there's been so much effort being put into trying to re rehabilitate this population. For the past few years, there has been no increase in the numbers. The total remaining stagnant at around 74 members, making each loss that much more devastating. That's the way that a population grows, and this population is just not meeting that recovery goal. Kylie Stanton, Global News.
Well, the province is investing $21 million for another medical imaging and research lab in Vancouver. The cyclotron and radiopharmacy machine makes radioactive isotopes used in a number of medical diagnostic procedures. Construction is underway for the new lab at UBC, which the government says will improve access to testing in the coming years. Together with Triumph, we've developed Canada's leading research program aimed to discover and develop new radio tracers for cancer imaging and treatment. These new radio tracers are created to shed light on the unique characteristics of tumors of specific cancers that happen in patients. Through this, we can gain accurate insight into what's happening within the body and improve on how we've diagnosed and monitored care. The province says it is also providing an additional $11 million to Triumph for more lab capacity. The BC Cancer Foundation is adding another $3.5 million. The new cyclotron is expected to be up and running in 2026. Still ahead, against all odds, a furry companion comes home. We had tons of offers of help. Some people were going door to door. How despair turned to joy when Casper suddenly reappeared after being lost for 17 days. And in sports, betting on a big contract. Can the BC Lions keep their defensive star? South Coast is known for year-round flip-flops. Like people are... You could almost wear flip-flops. It was so warm yesterday. It feels that way. <laughs> Even today was mild. Yeah. Christy's here with the latest. Flips are, flops are so great in this weather because they're waterproof too, right? Yeah, You're good to exactly. go. Exactly. That, that's what you need. All right. So, yeah, because of the heat that we're seeing, this is day three of record-breaking heat across the region. I'm just going to look back at yesterday because late in the evening at 11 p.m. at night, Chilliwack surged 18.5 degrees. Abbotsford also uh, hit that temperature at 18.3. But the key is, is that this is an all-time hottest temperature ever in January. This is substantial indeed, blowing past the old record. And we broke 35 daily record highs across the province yesterday, not only did we break record highs, but we also broke, broke record lows. And look at Fort St. John hitting 12.8 degrees. That's 20 degrees above seasonal for this time of year. So this was a substantial snow eater event. These are the records preliminary at this point for the region today. But nonetheless, this is the third day in a row and we're expecting heat again tomorrow. Well, we'll likely break records once again. Now, we talked about the rainfall event. It's going to be very different than an atmospheric river. This situation brings bands of rainfall across across the region. So we will see rain, but it will be on and off across the area tonight, tomorrow, and into our Thursday morning. So these are the numbers that we could see. The latest computer model now showing a little bit more for the Pemberton region. We're talking about the potential for 30 millimeters. Coast regions, periods of rain, pleasant conditions for those of you once again in the Caribou Central Interior. A few showers in through the Southern Interior and for the South Coast, we'll see warm, wet conditions once again. So 14 degrees, periods of rain on and off throughout the day. We're also expecting windy conditions near the water. Thursday, Friday, temperatures come down a touch. Still a few showers in the forecast. Much drier on the weekend. That's what we need. We need to string together several dry days and certainly the near seasonal temperatures were much more pleasant for skier and snowboarders eyes. All right. Lily Jews sharing this one with us where she did capture a rainbow uh, at one point today. All right. Nice to, to see some blue sky as well. Thanks, Christy. Mm -hmm. see it ever. All right, Squire joins us now with a look ahead to sports. Okay, so because CFL teams are under, well, around a $5.5 million salary cap, keeping everybody from last season gets a bit tricky. 
it'd be nice to just have not a cap and just build this football team because then you'd be, you know, really good. And, but that's not the world we live in. Okay, so Neil McAvoy, will the Lions be able to sign star defensive lineman Matthew Betts before free agency begins on the day before Valentine's Day? Also ahead tonight. I don't want to go through that again. How Casper the dog beat the odds to survive 17 days lost in Surrey. Valentine's Day circled on the calendar for different reasons well, beyond romance. So Valentine's Day is February 14th. Mm -hmm. Yes, very good, Squire. Thank you very much. <laughs> Took me a lot of years to figure that out. Um, the day before Valentine's Day, which is February 13th, is the day CFL teams get to give some love and money to free agent players. Now, we've seen how the BC Lions have already kept a few players from going to market by re-signing them, but is there enough money in the Lions bank account for defensive lineman Matthew Betts, who of course was last year's most outstanding defensive player. Matthew Betts is the one big impending free agent the Lions have yet to ink to a new deal. He's coming off a career season where he led the CFL with 18 sacks. Betts was paid handsomely, pulling down 200 grand for his efforts and will likely be the league's highest paid defensive lineman when free agency opens February the 13th. Question is, who's writing that large check? We're definitely working away at it. It's not for lack of effort. There's some big names in this league, which Matthew would be one of those, that it's going to be interesting to see what happens. So um, as, the, as these days tick by and you get closer to the date, you know, the motivation tends to kick up on the player side or the team side, whatever that is. So um, Matthew and some other big names in this league, it'll be in interesting to see what happens. Interesting on a few fronts because Betts has an opportunity to help BC possibly play in and win the Grey Cup here at BC Place. He's also coming off for a year where he was named the league's top defensive player, so he's due for a raise, possibly a substantial one if his hometown province and city of Montreal come calling. Then it becomes a matter of if the Lions want to get into a bidding war for Betts' services and if the price is right. Uh, we live in a salary cap world. I mean, um, all the pieces have to fit. It would be nice to... Uh you know, I've said this before, it'd be nice to just have not a cap and just build this football team because then you'd be, you know, really good. And But that's not the world we live in. I mean, we live within the constraints that the, uh, the league gives us and we're, you know, trying to live within those means. The good news is negotiations are continuing. We're just going to have to wait and see where they end up and with who. We're still in the process. I mean, it, again, it all has to fit. It has to fit for him, it has to fit for us. I mean, it's all financially... Um, you know, uh, there's dominoes. I mean, you, you, you can get the deal done today, but then the dominoes would be, you know, almost too catastrophic for us to, uh, to deal with. So we're, we're working with it. We're trying to get it all done. I mean, we're, like I said, we're trying to get as many guys back. He's a good football player. He's certainly a, a good guy and uh, means a lot to this football team. We're just uh, trying to get as many guys back as we can. So even though the Vancouver Whitecaps train in Spain, there was a bit of a Norwegian feel there today. They uh, played a Norwegian side in an exhibition game, and they added a new defender by signing a Norwegian veteran, Bjorn Inga Utvik, who played professionally in Norway since 2012. He gives Vancouver some depth on the back line, and you can never have too much of that. And he's also gotten the odd goal in his career. Very good players, a lot of experience in, uh, in a good league like Norway. And uh, he played in his career both in a back four and in a back three. He's a guy that... Uh, um, I'm from a league that is very tactical and all the video that I see, all the games that I see, his tactical discipline was on point. 
Here's an example of Utvik's defending, and he says he's almost ready to go a full 90 minutes. My fitness, I think it's quite good. We uh, we ended the season the 3rd of December, uh, and I had uh, a week off after after this game, and since that I've been training quite okay. Say cheese. So the Whitecaps today played Haugensund of Norway, and this is the Whitecaps goal. It was rather easy for Fafa Pico to make it uh, one nothing in the 54th minute. How about Ryan Gold? Nope, not regular season form yet. Okay, the good news is it doesn't really count. Final score was 1-1. The uh, Vancouver Canadians are bringing back uh, Delta's Brent Lavallee to be the manager. It'll be his third season as a skipper, and of course last year he won the Northwest League Championship with the Seas. So yesterday, Canadian figure skating believed it had won a belated bronze medal from the 2022 Winter Olympics when Russian skater Kamila Velieva, yes, Velieva, was disqualified for doping violations in the team event. The Russians had won gold, Canada finished fourth. But through some rather interesting accounting, the international skating bosses threw Canada for a triple loop. They said they'd only take away the points Valieva earned for her team and did not disqualify the whole team. Therefore, Russia still has enough points to finish third because they're now one point ahead of Canada. Canada says it's looking to appeal this decision. Hmm. Shocking. Yeah. Math is weird sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, and sometimes so is scoring and figure skating. Yeah, no, no doubt. Kidding. Yeah, thanks. Uh, well, what happens when you're a white dog lost in a snowstorm? You blend in. Yeah, you do. Casper the Labradoodle's disappearing act in South Surrey and how the community came together to find him next. Jennifer Palma is standing by in our newsroom tonight with a preview of what's coming up on the news at 11. Jen? Yeah, thanks, Chris. We're continuing to follow the state of emergency in the Pemberton area where six properties are under an evacuation order in what's being called a historic situation. The River Forecast Center says rivers in the area and along the Sea to Sky Corridor are flowing full and fast after a chain of atmospheric rivers and now another is expected. To help people protect their homes and properties, a sandbag station has been set up. Detours are also in effect. We do have a crew in the Pemberton area monitoring the situation, and we will have more for you tonight on Global News at 11. Sophie, Chris? All right, definitely need to keep an eye on that. Thanks, Jen. Well, it's a story that's captured the hearts of people across the South Surrey White Rock Peninsula. Casper, a partially deaf white labradoodle, disappeared in Crescent Park 17 days ago. After those freezing temperatures and heavy snowfall, and just when things were looking grim, the family got a lucky break. Catherine Urquhart reports. Who is this person? Yeah. I know. Are you happy to be home? With bright blue eyes and a white coat, Casper was hardly invisible until he escaped at Crescent Park and ghosted his human for 17 days. Everyone said to me that he was likely hiding in the day and moving and searching for food at night. Yes. You went on the river walk without me. Huh? Amid record cold temperatures and snow, there was a massive hunt for Casper. Pet searchers joined along with countless others. 
they have sniffer dogs and they've been out uh, as much as they possibly can with their dogs, with me searching the park. Then a doggone miracle happened. Casper was found alive at Nika Wind Golf Course. Someone just said, you know, whose dog is that running down the, the fairway? Uh, and he was just running over there, getting muddy. We got him uh, the probably trail. at where the trail just about meets Crescent Road. <laughs> oh my God, I can't. Everyone's going, it's Casper, it's Casper. And so we look at, we had the poster on the door. Uh, so we looked at the poster and went, no, that's Casper. Someone got a hold of him and then we took him back over to the golf course, put a nice little uh, heat on him and a blanket and called, called Liz here. So it was awesome, feel good moment. The little Labradoodle needs a good scrub and presumably lots of kibble. Oh boy, yes. Casper's vanishing act and search unified an entire community. This was not a uh, solo find. There was many, many people involved in finding Casper. I almost can't even believe it, honestly. One that is now positively overjoyed. He's back home. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Oh, good Casper. Such a cute dog. Well, you might have noticed uh, a little wardrobe oddity the past few weeks here on the News Era and on the Morning Show. If you have questions, we will address them on the Morning Show tomorrow at 7.40. Kind of felt like Groundhog Day around here for a couple of weeks, and we'll explain it all tomorrow at 7.40 a.m. Get up early like we are. Thanks for watching, everyone. Talk to you later. Good night, all. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.